All right, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds, because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is January the 16th. Um, we're back here recording. After my brief little hiatus to, to Miami, I went straight from a, basically straight from a beach um, in near South Beach, right into the heart of what feels like a proper New England winter. Got some snow today. Um, I did some shoveling, although already it's uh, it's kind of gone turn to rain and slush and mush and whatever but anyways how does this uh how does this tuesday evening find you well i will say that as i mentioned on prior episodes i very much enjoy the seasons it's one of my favorite parts about living up here in the northeast and so it is nice to have some proper winter days over the past few weeks in contrast to the 50 degree days that we had in December and even we had one of those last weekend too. So it's not like we're out of the woods with that, but it's, I'd like to see the snow as much of a mess as it can be. And as, as much havoc as it can wreak as it did on the the public transportation system here in Boston this morning. Um, If people live up, up here, they are probably intimately familiar with the difficulties that uh, the T has. And those were exacerbated by this morning's storm, but Ricky, we are catching you in between two more jaunts. As you mentioned, you are back from Miami and soon to take off down to Austin, Texas later this week. But Ricky, why don't you tell the people what you were doing down in Miami? Well, we were uh, celebrating my my wife's birthday, the uh, the 10th anniversary of her 21st birthday, as I like to say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she's unfortunately, uh, well, not unfortunately, Fortunately, she's with child. She and I are expecting our first kid in April. Um, but that also Ooh. meant that, you know, can't celebrate that 10 year anniversary the way the way one might. Um, under well, she, she couldn't. Yeah, I guess she, I guess. <laughs> she couldn't and I didn't in solidarity. We'll, we'll yeah. put it that way. But um, it was it was a really nice time. Her parents uh, do a little bit of uh, spend time in Miami, spend time in Maryland, Delaware. So they have a, they have a place for us to, uh, to crash. And also, um, it's an awesome location down there. So it's, I don't know if you, have you been to Miami besides, oh no, we went for my bachelor party. That's right. <laughs> yes, I can, I can see why you might not remember that, but <laughs> we were there no more than a year and a half ago, but yes, Ricky, I, I think it was, high time sorry to pressure you into that but uh to announce to our loyal listeners out there that ricky and his wonderful wife jenny are expecting their their first child as as you said in april which is as we all know the best month to be born so we hope it works out and that the child is born in april like both you and i are but very exciting news that we have known for obviously some time now but excited to share it with everyone else and yeah, we'll keep people updated. I, I feel like a lot of our listeners are either, as we've noted previously with our own friends, many of our friends have recently become parents and our older listeners are becoming grandparents. And it's just uh, really exciting times for all of us and particularly for you and Jenny. So thrilled for you guys and 
hope everyone out there is excited to, to hear some of the, the stories and the, as the journey uh, continues for you guys. Yes, I uh, no, I, I appreciate that. I, I sort of feel like I dropped this announcement as unceremoniously on our listeners as I did on you. So yeah, uh, a couple yeah. months back. So I, I uh, at least I'm consistent, you know, that's what you asked for. We always appreciate consistency here, Ricky. All right, but we digress. What uh, what are we talking about this week, Brennan? We're going to run back a 6 and 60 this week because there are a number of topics that we want to talk about today. We actually, as we were brainstorming a list, we had probably 10 different topics that we threw out there. We've decided on six. Uh, as usual, if you've listened to this type of program before, we're going to try to do each of these six topics in approximately 10 minutes. We'll do our best to stick to that time. The point is not to have a super in-depth discussion about each one, like we did, for example, on our 14th Amendment deep dive from last week. Got some good feedback on that. So if you didn't listen to that episode, I'd certainly encourage you to, to uh, go back and listen to it. We know that the Supreme Court is going to take up that case in about three weeks. Then uh, obviously the case I'm referencing is whether President Trump, uh, the 14th Amendment prohibits uh, Trump from being on the ballot as Colorado and Maine have already ruled. So we we do some of those episodes where we're really going to dig into like the text and the history of, of, of certain issues. And here it's more, we're going to give some reactions to things that are in the news. So the six topics we're going to talk about this week, we're going to, obviously yesterday was Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And as Ricky, we've said many times on about various different holidays, these holidays do give us a chance to, reflect to, on the meaning of the holiday, in this case, the meaning of Dr. King and his life and his legacy. And so there are a few things that I was reflecting upon this weekend that I wanted to discuss with you. And I think maybe we'll provide some through lines to these other five topics, even though these five topics are quite disparate, actually. So after talking about um, Dr. King, we're going to talk about the situation in Yemen, actually, uh, in the, the shipping and the attacks that uh, the strikes that the United States and allies carried out over last week and actually into this morning as well. Uh, we'll also talk about the Iowa caucuses for last night, the results coming out of those. We'll talk about the state of the Republican race and the state of the Democratic race, such as either one of those races really exists at this point. Uh, we'll also talk about uh, the president of Harvard, Claudine Gay, uh, resigning her position. And finally, want to wrap up with a little sports talk, Ricky. Um, some big news in our world for our beloved New England Patriots this past week. And there's a lot to unpack there. We'll try to limit that to 10 minutes. I can't wait. All right, before we get into it, a quick reminder, the podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. They've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2016. That's Cannon with two ends. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Ricky, there are many tree puns out there, as you and the listeners have been uh, subjected to over the past three years. But a corny one is always the funniest. But I will say that I am I am stepping back in 2024 from my puns. I feel like I've really exhausted my supply of wood and tree puns over these past 115 episodes or however long. I think I think Cannon Hill came on with us maybe 15 or 20 episodes in. So uh, I think about 100 tree puns was my limit. So going forward, we'll just be pitching the wonderful products of that Cannon Hill makes and creates and encourage everyone to go check those guys out. But uh, consider this my general retirement from the tree pun game. 
you know, there's uh, there are a lot of retirements from of uh, great leaders <laughs> this past couple of weeks, and I don't know that anyone does the tree pun game quite quite like you have, or anyone ever will again. So yeah, no, I, I might be. I might be the greatest, right? It's, they take out a Nick Saban, Bill Belichick, Brennan Kelly, and his tree puns on the gentleman's disagreements. Yeah. Hey, you know, someone's got to be the best at it. Might as well be you. Anyways, it's been a good run. Um, let's get into these uh, topics. So, Ricky, you and I played some indoor tennis over this past weekend on, on Saturday night, and we were talking about Dr. King, as we tend to do when we do these other activities. Uh, and I think one of the most interesting things about Dr. King, and this is true of many historical figures, but I think Dr. King in particular occupies this role where now, oh, 50 plus years on from his assassination, people want to make Dr. King into someone, a figure that benefits their side, whatever that side may be. I think there's a lot of kind of repurposing Dr. King and his life and his legacy to fit the narrative that you want. And Dr. King, obviously, while the civil rights movement is kind of the crowning achievement, he, he was a speaker. And so he has speeches over the course of decades or several decades, at least, where He's you know, taking stands on a number of issues that were central to the 1950s and 60s, but in many ways continue to resonate today. So I think it's been fascinating to see over these past years how Dr. King has been used, for example, in an issue like affirmative action, where people that were both for and opposed to affirmative action both would cite Dr. King as Dr. King would feel that like we need affirmative action to rectify all the past injustices that have been perpetrated by the United States in its systems against black people in this country. And you would also, on the other hand, if you were opposed to affirmative action, you would say, well, Dr. King was wanted people, his, his whole I have a dream speech was predicated on the idea that judge people on not on the color of their skin, but on the content of that character. We shouldn't be, if Dr. King was alive today, he wouldn't support affirmative action because he wouldn't want people to be judged on their race. So that's kind of one area. But there's two other speeches that I was thinking about over the weekend that I think are really interesting in, in the context of today. And it, it also proves like how enduring Dr. King is, his his legacy, his words are, because I think they resonate just as much today as they did 50 plus years ago. So the first I want to bring up is a speech called um, Beyond Vietnam, A Time to Break Break Silence. And this is a speech from 1967, delivered actually a year to the day before Dr. King was assassinated, where Dr. King finally takes on United States involvement in Vietnam, really for the first time in, in a, an entire speech. And this speech was hugely controversial, and, and many people at the time urged Dr. King not to give it. And in the aftermath of the speech, uh, he, he faced a lot of backlash. And the reason for that is because Dr. King was working in some ways with President Johnson with you know the Civil Rights Act and, and all of the things that President Johnson was kind of doing for the Great Society were like these ideas that Dr. King had been uh, really like pounding the pavement for literally for years at this point where to to advance the black people in this country, minority people in this country, poor people in this country. And to take 
a shot at the United States involvement was going to be really a shot at President Johnson, who had in many ways been an ally, a very imperfect ally, but an ally in this fight against civil rights. And so many people told Dr. King, don't give this speech. It's just going to hurt you amongst you know, the allies that we need to continue to advance civil rights. We've done like an incredible job here, you know, in 1967 for these past you know five years or so, but there's still so much work to do and you're going to harm that effort by giving a speech like that. And essentially that's what happened. Uh, President Johnson was very upset with the speech and Dr. King lost the support of a lot of like white elite liberals who were like, kind of like, I'm with you on some of these civil rights things, but don't, let's not start criticizing our foreign policy in Vietnam. But Dr. King felt so strongly about this as he often did was that like, he, you know, I think the speech is really beautifully named, like a time to break silence where he was saying, I, I can't be silent anymore and watch the United States and other allies, European allies, continue to kill these poor people and to sink millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars into this foreign conflict when we are when we lack the money theoretically or the will to invest money into like anti-poverty programs here at home. And so while the speech was one of the most controversial in his life, I think in so many ways it was uh, one of the more important speeches he ever gave at the time, 1967, but also to me in reflecting in 2024, how much uh, the themes and messages of his speech still resonate today. Wow, that that that's something I actually did not know, but it doesn't surprise me. I think you sort of talked about this or alluded to this a bit, how people have perverted history is probably a strong word, but used Dr. King or almost like a caricature of him to talk about a, a number of different things. Like, you know, what's the right way to protest or demonstrate or, yeah. you know, yeah. And we've, we've talked about that a bit at, at length before. And I think it'll, that, you know, we'll, we'll sort of see that come up again today, but just this idea of how do you, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of balancing what your conscience says with what is expedient for a cause that you lead, I think is really a, a, a tricky area to navigate. And um, obviously, in the in, in sort of hindsight, like something like that, which may have sort of harmed his influence at the time, is not something that we remember him for today and yet so many of the things that we remember him for today we're not actually even sure how he would have felt about that i i think of i think about that a lot in in sort of the context of how he was sort of framed as kind of the only reason that we were granted civil rights is that he was able to through nonviolent protest create this movement and a lot of that is true a lot a lot of the momentum for civil rights advancements were caused by that. But a lot of it had to do with the Black Panthers and Malcolm X. And a lot of it had to do with other influential goings on at the time that we almost minimize because it doesn't help that sort of linear story. And it also, you know, it doesn't serve the narrative that the only way people should be going about getting change is through civil, you know, nonviolent protest and, and sorry. And the, the way that I'm saying that makes it sound like I am for violent protest. I'm not necessarily, but the, 
there is sort of a whitewashing of history in that we are we discount the impact of some of these other things that happened in order to present this narrative that here was this great leader, which he was, and a narrator and then you know a teller of stories and his speeches were incredible and those continue to resonate today. But there was so much more going on. I think as we know, like history was not black and white. I think that piece of King's history that you shared is is really interesting to me because it reminds me of some of the things that sort of like Nelson Mandela went through um, following sort of the fall of apartheid in South Africa, right? He was outspoken um, in favor of the Palestinian cause, but that didn't endear him here in the United States either. And there are sort of a number of cases in history like that. Um, and I, I think that I think that's something that's just always important to remember in his legacy to try and understand him as a person beyond sort of the caricature that fits the the narrative that is you know the easiest to put in a in a two-liner in your history book well that is a nice transition into the second thing that i wanted to bring about about dr king was that if you were on social media at all yesterday and i hope many people were not but if you were you probably saw a lot of people posting quotations or excerpts from videos from Dr. King's speeches on either the pro-Israeli side or the pro-Palestinian side. And Dr. King gave a speech in 1959. He had gone to Jerusalem, and at the time, Jerusalem was split. Israel controlled one half of Jerusalem, and Jordan controlled the other half of Jerusalem, obviously, in, in the time since then, since, I believe, 1967, Israel has controlled all of Jerusalem more or less. I know it's more complicated than that, but let's, for the sake of this segment, let's say that. And Dr. King talked about how, in the speech, like how moving it was to be there and to walk, obviously Dr. King was a great Christian, and, and to walk the path that, that that Jesus had walked and how moving spiritually it was for him, but at the same time to look around at the tension and the, the violence kind of in the air and in the area and, and see how, how much like man and all of like the, the, foibles and flaws of man had negatively impacted the spirit, the beautiful spiritual aspect of that place. And after that speech, Dr. King, obviously the 1960s were a very turbulent time in Jerusalem and Israel as they continue to be today. And Dr. King, while moved to address some of those issues, also knew that he had to weigh his words very carefully because he, I think, empathized with peoples in, in, on both sides. And so I thought it was really interesting yesterday to see some of these things on social media where you could see videos where Dr. King was saying that like Israel had a right to exist. And he was saying that like to, it was, it was necessary to speak out against anti-Semitism, all his forms and saying that like Jewish leaders had stood with him and with black people as they fought for their rights and black leaders would stand with Jewish people and fight for their rights. And so I would see many of my pro-Israeli friends, pro, you know, people against anti-Semitism, even that's, I know those are slightly different things, uh, posting some of those, those excerpts and those videos. And I was like, yeah, like, I think, I think he would absolutely, he would be at the forefront of denouncing the anti-Semitism that we have seen in the United States and across the world. But if you, you could click on some other stories from other friends who are much more like kind of pro-Palestinian here, and the what what would they be pointing to? They would be pointing to that speech I just gave or to civil disobedience or to say that 
Dr. King was always a voice for the voiceless, for people that were oppressed, for minorities in, in the area. And while many people might disagree with that take for Palestinians, I think many Palestinians feel that they are an oppressed, marginalized people in the Israel, in the Middle East, in that area right now. And so many people, you know, posting quotes at, at rallies for Palestine or for Yemen even. And I, I just think, again, I don't have a, a take on this in particular. Dr. King, I want to emphasize, was very careful about choosing his words around this conflict at the time because he knew that really no matter what he said, it was never going to win. And I just think it's in some ways, it's definitely not funny, but like 50 years later, you and I and all feel very, anytime we talk about this issue, we're like, there's no way to 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 say the right thing here and it's people are not going to agree but um to see that i think um dr king's son was asked about what his father would would have would say with the situation right now and he said quote i don't know the answer to the middle east what i do know is that my father would be for the support of all humanity whatever that looks like and today it does not look like humanity is existing in an appropriate way in the middle east and i thought that was pretty spot on i don't know that we can say that mlk would be pro-Israel would be pro-Palestine. I think he would say what's happening there is a real tragedy of humanity and we need to do better. But I just, in reflecting upon his legacy over the past few days, I, I was struck by some of these uh, these speeches and his words that I hadn't maybe previously spent a lot of time examining. Yeah, and I don't, I, I, I think those are also great points to bring up, just, just in the vein of reminding ourselves that Anytime that we are encountering something and we feel like, man, it's never been like, you know, it's never been this bad before to, to do things like look into history and see how other great people, great minds have grappled with similar issues and how they have either, either figured out which side they, they fall on or, or not like continued to sort of understand the nuance there. I think I think his what what you pulled in terms of um what did you that, that was his grand grandson his son his son um I think that's a really interesting quotation because I and and I don't really know where he stood on sort of the idea of nationalism but I think a lot of why his speeches have appeal is because they were so often centered on sort of this the fundamental common humanity that we all share and obviously he was speaking specifically about differences that are obvious due to race but so many of what so much of what he said could apply to really any anything that seeks to to segregate in that like we're all you know, and it, I mean, a lot of it echoes, right, our own Declaration of Independence, just this like life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Right. And I think that that is how we how we achieve that and for whom it is achieved is obviously not a simple question. But I don't know, I, I think it, it it helps me keep in mind when I'm trying to think about how I feel about certain issues or feel about certain things going on in the world i i like to think that my perspective oftentimes comes from hearing words like that that you know 
allow not only to have like empathy for other people, but to feel like if things had been different and you had been born in a different place, how would you want, how would you want the world to treat you if, you know, you weren't as, uh, as lucky as, as really as we are. Absolutely. So that's all we have on, on MLK for the time. This obviously I'm sure you can go other places and get even more in-depth analyses of, of his life and his legacy. I will say a little Easter egg for our loyal listeners out there. We'll be talking, I would imagine, much more about MLK in about a month when we do our next President's Day draft. So keep an eye out for that. We're excited about the topic coming for that. But uh, let's move on to the second topic, Ricky, which is the situation in Yemen. And for the a brief overview of, of what's happened there. Since Israel's invasion of Gaza post the October 7th massacre by Hamas, this group in Yemen are called, called the Houthis have been carrying out attacks on ships in really the Red Sea, which is a, a vital shipping strait internationally. And if anyone pulls up a map or can visualize a map, what you're visualizing is really the space in between the waterways in between uh, Northeast Africa and Southwest Asia. So we're looking at the countries we're looking at in between like Egypt and Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Somalia, Yemen, all of these countries around there. Very brief background. The Houthis are a militant group backed by Iran that has been engaged in a civil war in Yemen for almost two decades now. That civil war has been devastating to um, Yemeni citizens. Currently, the Houthis control the, the southwest portion of Yemen. So it's under like this Houthi control. They've been, they were at one point designated as a terrorist organization under the Trump administration, President Biden's administration rescinded that designation. But essentially there's this uh, militia that controls part of Yemen and Yemen is the country that is right under Saudi Arabia, that it's right on the, the sea there. And over the past several weeks, the Houthi militants have been firing missiles uh, at sh international ships. Uh, I guess this best way to say it, I, I believe there have been at least 27 documented incidents of that. And this is in addition to the over 130 documented incidents of attacks on U.S. troops and embassies, U.S. troops that are stationed in the area, allegedly in, by Iran-backed ba um, proxy groups, um, which the Houthis are one. So th it's the situation is, is history is quite complicated. The United States has been supplying Saudi Arabia with arms for a decade to combat the Houthis in Yemen. It's because terrible suffering. The Saudi Arabians have led a blockade of of the Houthi-controlled area of Yemen, which has caused yeah, incredible uh, like famine for, for the citizens there. And so there's really a, not a good situation in Yemen. Again, it's under both the kind of the east is under control of one, the Yemeni government, and then the west is under control of the Houthis. But over the weekend, uh, the United States led coalition, and that coalition included at least 13 countries, including Great Britain, Germany, Australia, Qatar, uh, carried out a, a number of strikes on Houthi military bases. They actually did the same thing just this morning. They carried out some some more, I believe, four more, what they call dynamic strikes. And if for some people, 
they said, well, about damn time, like we can't just let these Houthis continue to fire indiscriminately uh, to, you know, international ships without any sort of repercussion for them and for other people. This was a real fear about escalating the situation in war in the Middle East. So what were your takes on the strikes that the U.S.-led coalition has authorized in the past few days? Yeah, I, uh, I, <laughs> obviously, so, I mean, I guess, yeah, just to, just to, I think, reemphasize, so that shipping channel, like, for, for, for anyone not familiar, that, that's basically the, the Red Sea connection to the Suez Canal that then goes to the Mediterranean, right? So if you, if you don't have access to that, what you have to do if you're coming from, say, China would be to go around the Horn of Africa and you're talking about like 10x the amount of time for a cargo shipping container. So economically, this is a big deal if we're not allowed, if, you know, if ships can't really go back and forth. That being said, <laughs> A, we're not at war with Yemen, so it's like a weird thing for us to lead a coalition. This sound, you know, the co I don't know if you remember the Dave Chappelle skits back in Iraq, like the coalition of the willing, like Japan sending PlayStations and Djibouti's like coming in with, you know, the hot milk or whatever. Like it's it's us and Great Britain again. Uh, <laughs> and this sort of thing is, it's, like yes you you don't want um this kind of disruption to the global economy to go unchallenged does continued bombing of these places that we have been bombing whether of ourselves or like you said by giving tons and tons of weapons and things to Saudi Arabia does that help our cause in the long term i would say no um, right. Like this may be the first time that a lot of people are hearing about Houthis as like another potential terrorist group. This will not be the first time, you know, they're not the first time they are feeling like they're being attacked by the United States. Right. Like we've done drone campaigns in in their country for however many years going back to the Obama administration. What you mentioned about the the Saudi blockade. Right. Like people or the United Nations would have called Yemen kind of the greatest humanitarian crisis, you know, for a long time, uh, uh, right up until sort of Gaza is replacing it right now. Um, but these are, these, these are like, it, I don't, I get, yeah, this, it's complicated because I don't know what the right answer is. I do not think that the fact that our government's answer to all of these problems is to just like, Let's just go bomb some places. They don't op. It doesn't operate like a country operates. And I think fundamentally, we still don't have a good answer for how to deal with these groups that don't have like organization the way a traditional country does. Or they're not waving a white flag because they don't exist and operate in the spaces that would require them to to wave that flag in order to be able to sort of re-engage with polite society, right? They've already, like you, once you make people desperate and you cut them off from everything else, all of a sudden you have no leverage. And I think we're seeing that again here. And, you know, to their, to their credit, 
not credit. It's not the right word, but they're basically saying what, what we're seeing in, in Gaza is, is going unchecked by all of the people who seemingly have the power to do something about it. And right. We saw 20,000 people died. No drop, no, no bombs were dropped anywhere else. Right. We didn't, we didn't raise any sort of military response anywhere else. Not that, not necessarily that we should have, but a few sh missiles launched at some ships in, in the Red Sea and all of a sudden the bombing campaign starts immediately. So it, 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 I think what is happening is troubling. I think that our political administrations continue to just do the same old thing that they've always done. And it's, you know, whatever that definition of insanity is. I think one of the other things that should be noted is that both Russia and China came out against it. And, you know, take that for what it, you know, take that with a grain of salt or however you will, but in this kind of understanding of where or like, you know, where support is going to go and to whom in the past where we've sort of been that individual power, we're now acting as if we still are. And I think that, the, I think it's, it's, I don't know. I think I think it's going to be interesting moving forward. I threw a lot of thoughts at you. I don't know. Take jump uh jump in wherever uh wherever or feel free to disagree. Well, I, I agree with you in the sense that I think this is a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation, right? There have been people in the United States and, and globally in some ways that have been calling on the United States again for whatever, for better, for worse, the United States is still in some ways like the global police that people are kind of like, you need to kind of step in here and protect this international shipping route, which as you correctly note, is essential to global trade. And so whether it was here in the United States or abroad in some ways, people have been saying, look, we have to do something. And it's, we've, we were repeated, repeated warnings to the Houthis to stop doing this. And they weren't listening because of, of course not. Their, their response is like, we'll stop what's happening in Gaza. And then maybe we'll start listening to you. But like, until you stop that, we're not going to stop either. And so that's where like, people are, have been saying for weeks, like the Biden administration is making the United States look weak, right? We don't respond to any of these attacks. We're continuing to be, we, we're continuing to allow our service members over there to suffer potential attacks. We're allowing international ships to suffer attacks with no, no response, no retribution, can't do that. And to that end, in the United Nations, the Security Council passed a resolution last Wednesday condemning the attacks unanimously, 11-0. Russia and China abstained, but abstaining is important because it allows it allows it to go through it. So there was international consensus that like what was happening there was wrong and, and dangerous and not a good situation. But then you go and bomb them. And this is exactly what the Houthis want, right? This is exactly where they say, this is what we've been saying for years. It's the United States. It's the West. It's Saudi Arabia who's oppressing us. Look, now they're bombing our country, even though we never targeted the United States specifically, whether or not you agree with that. That's certainly like the narrative that they're able to rightly proposed that when, as, as you saw, there were huge protests in Yemen over the weekend, kind of against what the United States was doing. And even though the United States can sell it internationally as this coalition, in Yemen, it's going to be seen as the United States is doing this. And that's not a wrong take, as you pretty much pointed out. It's the United States that, for better or for worse, has to do it. So I, I just think it was, a, a, you're just in a really, really difficult situation there. I don't think there's a right answer, but 
I think I, I do hear you when you're saying, well, bombing, <laughs> bombing as like your default answer is doesn't seem to be the best idea. We've seen that for many decades now and how that's played out for the for us in the Middle East. Last thing I wanted to say is that people on both here in the United States, on both the left and the right, were upset because President Biden did not get congressional approval to do this, which arguably, depending on who you talk to, would be in violation of the War Powers Act. If you're going to take measures to potentially send the United States take like warlike actions, you're supposed to get the approval of Congress. He, like many of his predecessors, chose not to do that before launching these attacks. So there are international issues with this and there are constitutional issues with this. And again, I'm not even saying that the Biden administration was wrong here. I think, think he felt like at some point he had to do something, but uh, it's it's a dangerous escalation of a conflict that seems to be widening. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I would agree with that. And maybe like the last bit that I would add is just that I think Reuters or maybe a couple other news outlets have sort of been alluding to this, that like recruitment among these groups in the, like the Houthis being one of them, but I'm sure Hezbollah, Hamas in general is up like across the board. And that's, that's not to say, well, well, of course, you know, terrorist recruitment is up. That means we, you, what are you saying that we should do nothing about it? No, but I think it should be said that like, we have been bombing a lot of these places or providing the bombs to drop on a lot of these places for a long time. And at some point you have to say, is that the best way to deal with this in general? And there is, I think what you're really pointing out to the tension between sort of the short-term and the long-term solutions. I, I'm personally, I, I would hope the Biden administration would be less worried about whether people are thinking they're weak or not or whatever. I mean, the, U, the U.S. military, again, bar none, spends like 10x the next closest rival in terms of uh, dollars in defense in defense budget. I don't whether we appear weak or not should have nothing to 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 dissuade, I mean, to do anything about like sort of dissuading our standing on the global stage from from a military might perspective, that would be my two cents. Anyways, um, shall we move on to the next one? Yeah, let's take a break and then we'll come back and discuss some U.S. politics. So last night, January fifteenth, were the Republican caucuses the the first event in the Republican primary, there were no Democratic caucuses because the Democratic National Com Committee uh, in cahoots in some ways, uh, or at the urging of the Biden administration has changed around their nominating order, the states, the state, the nominating order of the states. So traditionally, I would be the first in the nation for both Democrats, and Republicans, but uh, Democrats changed it, they put South Carolina first. That has created a situation in New Hampshire, which maybe we'll touch upon when we get to the Democratic side of things. But so last night, the only thing out there was the Republican caucuses in Iowa. And President Trump, as was widely expected, but still impressive in some ways, uh, absolutely dominated. He had a, a record, a, a massive record, uh, with over 51% of the votes, which is the biggest number ever for a non-incumbent. Obviously, in some ways, he is running as an incumbent. We've talked about that before. There are 99 counties in Iowa. President Trump won 98 of them. The only one he lost 
he lost by one vote. Every vote counts uh, to Nikki Haley. But it just in an, an incredible display of dominance by President Trump. He was unusually magnanimous in his victory speech, which I think plays into this. I, one veteran uh, Republican strategist in Iowa pretty much said the train has left the straight station. Like this is the, the first official step of several official steps in, to President Trump clinching the Republican nomination. His campaign has put it out there that they expect to do that by mid-March, which would be fairly early in the nominating process, uh, particularly when there's not an incumbent running. Who knows? That's all. That all remains to be seen. Obviously, there are a number of storylines that come out of that beneath the headline. The, the headline being Trump dominates well on way, you know, a statement victory. Other campaigns can spin this however they want to. Um, uh, Ron DeSantis, Governor DeSantis, came in second, a distant second with 21 percent of the votes. Hugely disappointing for him. He spent so much time and energy in Iowa. He visited all 99 counties, which is a, a really big thing. He was kind of the first and had the biggest ground game there. So he he staked almost everything on Iowa. And while he came in second, it's a very disappointing finish for him. Um, Governor Haley, former um, ambassador UN, Nikki Haley came in third, again, distant to President Trump, but close to Governor DeSantis. She had 19.1%. So uh, in some ways, depending on how you view it, you could say this is somewhat disappointing for Nikki Haley. She spent the most amount of money on advertisements in the state of Iowa. And so coming in a distant third, 32 points behind President Trump is troubling for you know the, the potential for of her candidacy. On the other hand, Nikki Haley was never going to do very well. And she was never going to win Iowa. The expectation was never that she was going to be a serious competitor. President Trump here just giving the electorate. This maybe gives her momentum into New Hampshire, which is the electorate is much more potentially much more friendly to her. And she certainly projected that in her speech at the end where she said Iowa showed this a two candidate race. Not She's really trying to will that narrative to happen. Like this is just between her and President Trump at this point. And then the other kind of the lower headlines on this are Iowa claims a couple more victims. Iowa was always meant to winnow down the field. We saw that with Senator Scott dropping out, Vice President Pence dropping out. Yesterday, uh, Governor Asa Hutchinson from Arkansas officially dropped out and Vivek Ramaswamy, the controversial, wealthy uh, biotech entrepreneur, also dropped out. So we really are down in a lot of ways after Chris Christie, who had dropped out as well, down to these three candidates, Trump, DeSantis, Haley, heading into next week's first in the nation uh, primary in New Hampshire. Ricky, what takeaway or takeaways did you have from the Iowa caucuses? Yeah, I think I think your summary was, was pretty much spot on. Um, I think, right, like Iowa boasts a pretty robust kind of evangelical voting block, um, which I think is what Ron DeSantis was counting on, given some of the policies that he's done in Florida, particularly around abortion. That being said, he's had horrible, if, I mean, that's like a generous description of his debate performance um, this uh, over the course of 2023. So maybe he feels better that he still somehow managed to come in second I would expect that to flip when when uh, when New Hampshire goes through their primary. But at the same time, yeah, I think the story is the story. President Trump, uh, former President Trump, uh, seems to be 
poised to run away with it. Um, the the winnowing of the field this quickly, um, I you would think also is going to play into his hands, right? He's no longer going to have to spend any airtime bashing what doesn't have to deal with Christie Ramaswamy was taught using his talking points anyway. So light really didn't have to do anything there. And I don't think, you know, Hutchinson or, or really any of the others were serious contenders, but being able to post a 30 point victory, if he's able to do something similar in New Hampshire, and it may not take very many primaries before, the others um, kind of go in the same direction. Um, and that, yeah, that just means he can basically spend six months and his entire war chest on bashing Biden, which um, definitely would not bode well for Democrats come November. Sure. In some ways, I think Democrats pros and cons that they can take out of this is the pro is now that President Trump while we always kind of knew this was coming again, this wasn't this, this result was not unexpected in any way. They can now really say that look, President Trump is the clear front runner of the Republican Party. Donate, volunteer, do all of these things. You can kind of start to get the the organization back up and running because now you have the boogeyman, not just in theory, but it seems increasingly like he's he's in front of you. Like he's he's going to be the guy. So I think it gins up a lot of that that fear that you can use that political campaigns often use to generate dollars and interest. Obviously, the downside of that is, yes, President Trump can, I think, post New Hampshire, if New Hampshire goes well for him, can really start to train himself on the general election. I will say, I mean, I think DeSantis is done. Uh, he had really staked everything on Iowa if, to, to finish 30 points behind Trump there. He's he, he's going to finish a distant third in New Hampshire. Like that, that electorate is not friendly to him. And then he's going to South Carolina, where President Trump is incredibly popular. And it was Governor Haley's home state. It's hard to see DeSantis emerging after South Carolina or Nevada. I, I, I would not be shocked to to see him drop out in in the next couple of weeks, which is a huge disappointment for him. Before he even declared Ricky, he was at thirty percent in Iowa, <laughs> and then all of these ninety nine counties in the probably the best most organized ground game there, and he lost ten points since he declared, which is I, I think an indictment of his campaign. Uh, so again, I think he has no shot. Nikki Haley's speech, uh, which I referenced earlier uh, at the conclusion of last night. She said, it, I thought it was interesting, she started tying President Trump and President Biden together, not only for their age, but also saying that they're both people that are kind of con consumed with the past while she's a new generation of leadership looking to the future, saying that they both have increased like the debt of our country, like over, you know, in their administrations, uh, true statements. Um, and essentially, she was making this choice, making this argument to voters in New Hampshire and going forward in other states, like there's a choice here. I'm the only one. I am really the last best hope between a Trump-Biden rematch. And whether or not you believe that that's a realistic hope. Ricky, we talked about this last time we did a 6 and 60, which I think ended November 110. I had pointed you statistically that the Republican field was smaller now than it had been almost any time in the last 100 years historically. Like back in 2016, when there were still 14 candidates after Iowa. Now we really have three, and I would argue really two. And so if there's any hope, and this is why Christie, you would think if he was being altruistic about it, one of the reasons Christie got out, Hutchinson gets out, where it's like the never Trump people, 
you gotta Haley's the only is the only viable candidate left. And again, I think it's after getting shellacked by 30 plus points in Iowa, it's fair to question whether this is just some pipe dream, whether she and her campaign or supporters like me are just in some like delusional fantasy world where we think that she has a shot when she actually in reality has no shot. But I really will say that if if you do not want a Trump-Biden rematch, the best thing that you can do if you live in New Hampshire or South Carolina is to pull a, a ballot, particularly in New Hampshire, you can pull a Republican ballot and vote for Nikki Haley. Uh, yeah, the, I think I think it is a pipe dream because I don't think DeSantis's supporters are never Trumpers. If anything, they're people who think, okay, maybe if Trump is potentially not electable against Biden that maybe some somebody like DeSantis would be. If he drops out, I would say 50%, if not more, are going to slide over to Donald Trump, which just means that Nikki Haley's, you know, looking at 70% uh, of the of, of the Republican electorate against her. Um, the, yeah, the, she's <laughs> a very, very, very bleak start to 2024 when it comes to our political, like, choices um at the top of the ticket yeah and look i mean if to president trump's credit and his campaign's credit first of all they were way more organized than they had been in 2016 or even in 2020 like they they didn't take it for granted like they had before but he spent less time there than any of the other candidates he spent less money there than any of the other candidates and to romp with 50 percent of the vote like what was one of the main arguments against him was his electability what 50% of the vote is saying is that like, even if everyone else consolidated against President Trump on one candidate, which clearly they did not, President Trump still would have won. And so like he's kind of, if you see all these polls that come out that show him beating Biden nationally and in all of these swing states, like it's really taken the wind out of what originally for DeSantis and Haley were one of their main strongest arguments for electability. And, you know, 50% is 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 remarkable there and like you say i mean ramaswamy dropping out like his voters are mo more likely going to trump if desantis if and when he drops out his supporters are probably more likely going to trump i'm still holding out hope perky but i uh i acknowledge that your pessimism is probably closer to reality than <laughs> than actual pessimism yeah all right speaking all right. of uh other candidates um shall we talk a little bit about dean phillips so um, I'm not entirely sure if you've heard this gentleman's name before. I uh, I don't know that I'm really familiar at all. He's a, uh, a senator from Minnesota. Yeah, he's a he's a representative from Minnesota. Rep, rep, sorry, representative from Minnesota who is effectively running um, a insurgent campaign. I think they're calling it against um president biden to be on the to sort of be the democratic nominee for um <laughs> for president his main argument as far as i can tell is that biden appears unelectable against trump but even i think he he said he's not polling well against nikki haley either although yeah i i'm i i'm not entirely sure how that how i feel about that sentiment but whatever his idea is that you know he's a younger uh sort of version of biden i think he's voted along biden alongside biden like a hundred percent of the time as a sort of reliable democratic vote 
but that he has some avenues where he could criticize Biden. And I think he's willing to, I don't know, make some concessions or something on, on immigration, or at least maybe more openly acknowledge the issues with immigration. These are like some of his pitch points. He recently got um, uh, like a million dollars from Ackman, who uh, I think we might talk about a little bit later, who's a head of a hedge fund, but has also come in, into um, into news recently because of his, sort of his outspoken um, views on on sort of the Harvard situation. But I think I mean I think there are a couple things. A I think that it is sad that we don't just generally have like a required primary process. Like it's been very disappointing that Trump hasn't had to go to any of these debates and can still be on the ballot. It is certainly disappointing to me that we don't have any democratic debates um, because this idea that there is only one kind of vision of the party within the, just because we're the incumbent, the, you know, Democrats are in the incumbent party is very sad and it doesn't give an opportunity for the electorate to sort of say, what are the things that we are interested in? How do we want you to go forward for the next four years? And Obviously, I think we know that four years ago, we may have been thinking one thing, but times change quickly and how we want as a country, we that I, I, I don't know how I'm using that. I, I often find that to be a ridiculous uh, sort of royal we to apply here when when in so many ways we're just all over the place. But I think you just you need to hear from you need to hear from the candidates and you in 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 a lot of times the debates are are opportunities for people not only to hone their message but to hear feedback in real time from people about like hey you said this but really like yeah, that did not pull well without having to do that it's just a i don't know it's very sad so i i, I guess I, I bring up his candidacy more to more as like a as a commentary on the way that the system operates and that we don't have to have um, a primary on both sides, um, really when there are effectively incumbent precedents that are that are on the ticket. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. It's definitely disappointing, frustrating, all of those things that you just said. I will say that Dean Phillips, Representative Phillips, has become like a pariah in the party. He was from everything that I have gathered was quite popular prior to announcing this insurgent run and all of a sudden has now is like a persona non grata in in Congress and wherever he goes for traditional Democrats. And to your point about like how in some ways like anti-democratic it is, New Hampshire is holding a Democratic primary next week alongside the Republican primary because it's in their, I believe, state constitution that says that they have to be the first primary in the nation. The Democratic National Committee, as I mentioned earlier, said that South Carolina was going to be the first state that votes. So President Biden isn't even on the ticket in New Hampshire. Like they, they're conducting some like write-in organization, but like they're not counting this, even though Dean Phillips is campaigning there. And then in Florida, the, the DNC didn't put Dean Phillips's name ahead, like put put forth. So he's not going to even appear on the ballot in Florida. And he sued in court, but I don't think he's going to win that. And so it's one of those things where we, this was alleged 
with the Democratic National Committee, both in the 2020 and 2016 elections, were that they had kind of shut, like shunted Bernie Sanders and his ideas to the side in favor of like the establishment candidates in 2020, Joe Biden, and, and prior to that, uh, 2016, Hillary Clinton. And yeah, I think that's really fair. And even if you go back to 2020, Bernie Sanders stuck around and there was a lot of criticism of him for sticking around as long as he did because they were like, you're just giving ammo to the Republicans, the President Trump, because in a debate, you're attacking President Biden for these other, for all of these reasons, whether largely policy based reasons. But they're saying like, this is, this is damaging a potential President Biden in his race with President Trump. And Bernie Sanders kind of saying, well, in order for like this is supposed to be like let's let people choose let, let's present different ideas competing visions for the party and for the country and then let people choose at the end i'm not going to be forced out and what does he do he kind of moves president biden to the left and says like they they meet when senator sanders eventually drops out they meet and senator sanders is like i'll support you but i need to see x y and z in your platform in order for me for me and my supporters to kind of rally behind you and get out and vote and you're just not going to see that not that like as you correctly said dean phillips politically and ideology is not different than President Biden in really any meaningful way. So he wouldn't move the needle in the same way. But in the same way that President Trump is just ducking these debates and some of like the real criticisms that a Nikki Haley might have of him policy-wise or Chris Christie might have of him as a, as a person, his character, he's just able to say, I'm not going to engage with those. President Biden's doing the same thing. So <laughs> maybe Nikki Haley is maybe not wrong tying the, the two of them together in, in these ways. Yeah, I think the only area that she is wrong is saying that she's got some kind of new vision for anything because she's pretty much a regurgitation of the Republican Party from the 90s. But I digress there. Um, on to the next one. Yeah, yeah. let's take a break. We'll come back and uh, hit our final two topics. Um, Claudine Gay from Harvard and the New England Patriots. So in general, presidents of prestigious uh academic institutions are not uh, sort of top of mind for me, but sort of following the last, the events of the last couple of months, um, I think there have been some interesting things that have gone on. And I don't want to say culminating in, because I think a lot of these are different, although related in, in certain ways, but um, over the last, I, I forget if this was Right before or, or shortly after the new year, Harvard President Claudine Gay basically announced her resignation. Um, there were many calls for it due to the sort of handling of um, protests, counter protests, and um, in general, anti Semitism on Harvard's campus following um, October 7th and, and kind of the, the 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 fallout invasion of Gaza, et cetera. Um, then there was the infamous testimony in before Congress, where there were a lot of questions asked by um, by uh, the representative Elise Stefanik. Where, and I I'd I'd love to get into that, but more so, I guess I'm curious as to to your thoughts on 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 kind of the end result, which was. She was sort of spared uh, being pushed out after that testimony, and we can talk about that a little bit. Um, but then it it looked like there was a concerted effort to figure out other ways to get rid of her. They surfaced some claims about plagiarism, which um, I'm interested to talk about. 
um, and then effectively just created enough noise and controversy that she decided that it would be in the best interest of, well, I'll say she decided. I think she was a combination of being pushed out and decided to to step down um, as president of of Harvard. So obviously she's the first black woman to hold that role. There were a lot of uh, her proponents and opponents of that, uh, of her elevation into that position. Um, and she didn't last very long. And yeah, uh, yeah, I, I guess questions to you if you have any initial thoughts. Yeah, I think she had to go. Um, yeah, I, I totally empathize in, in some ways that it was almost the perfect storm of of things that hit her in a very early part of her tenure. Like not only was she the first black woman to hold this post, but she had only been in the post for, for a very short time. And I think all leaders, when they're stepping up into a new position, there's a learning curve and people make mistakes. And I think largely people are given the grace to learn from those mistakes and, and get better. And I don't think there's any question she made mistakes. But so what, what she has the perfect storm of, you know, the the protests and the anti-Semitism that was existing on her campus that she maybe did not come out forcefully enough. There was, as we talked about before, there was almost no win situations for presidents of any any college, any university at that point. But certainly allegations that she wasn't protecting Jewish students on campus. And then the infamous video, which in the course of seven hours of testimony, both she and the presidents of uh, University of Pennsylvania and MIT come across really horribly. And again, that's an excerpt. It's a minute from hours of, of testimony, but it's a bad minute. And, you know, she's not the first to go. The Liz McGill from uh, Pennsylvania also resigned in the wake of, of her comments. And so it, in that way, we can kind of separate it a little bit from maybe the racial stuff that's going on here because it's, you know, Liz McGill was the, a white woman that was also pushed out, encouraged, felt like it was best for her to step down. But then again, you have all of the, the plagiarism stuff too. And I think it's just very clear, like what, like how serious you think the allegations of, of plagiarism were, there were definitely missteps. And when Harvard in their handbook and in their you know, academic councils comes out so unequivocally and strongly against academic plagiarism it's it's hard for the president of the university to have all of these accusations of like improper citation or outright plagiarism out there obviously for conservatives you have a lot of people don't like the dei process in general so they they could argue that she wasn't elevated because of her own credentials she was elevated because she checks the right boxes and then she comes out with this stuff that didn't paint her in a very good light about allowing uh, people on on the campus to to chant you know, essentially like death to Jews and from the river to the sea and those sorts of things. Uh, but look, ultimately, she was a distraction, uh, and I don't I don't know that I feel really badly. I think it, you know no one's entitled to that position, and she made enough mistakes where she had to go. I I think that's fair, and I think sort of the the overall. Um kind of verdict that she was a distraction and that no longer sort of serves the interests of Harvard um, is probably fair or, 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 or it's, it's accurate enough. 
Um, I, I think there are a couple of things, areas that I have issues. I don't like, so obviously in the testimony, the viral clip of Elise Stefanik asking, you know, do you do anything if somebody calls for a genocide against the Jews? And they say, well, it depends on the context. Obviously, it, in the, uh, for, you know, for that two second clip, that sounds horrific. But anybody who knows what they are trying to do understands that what they're saying is that, well, the idea is that we protect the First Amendment. Free speech is very important at school, in schools. And so saying something like intifada, or even as you said, from the river to the sea, when one group is saying that, well, that unequivocally calls for the extermination of the Jewish people, and one other group is saying that's not what it says, is there, should there be a room for that kind of debate on academic, on, on college campuses, right? Like, can't, can you say something like that and have that, right? Like, is, is there more context that needs to be added? I think a lot of people who, you know, we talked to Dr. Bertha Madras, and I think like, and I don't want to put words in her mouth, but I think to to an extent, the policing of words on college campuses has been a problem for both people on the left and the right. And that, I think, was the intent there. So she sort of kind of weathered that storm. Fast forward to why she got removed, right? So these these accusations of plagiarism, I think you summarize them perfectly. They are, uh, they're serious for an academic institution. You can't have the president plagiarizing stuff, but plagiarism is not like, you know, it's not an either or thing. There are some gray areas to it, but when you say the word plagiarism, it connotates something extremely serious. I think she had one of the you know, people that she was accused of lifting from came out and said, yeah, I mean, I used the same words before. Do I think that this is a huge deal? No, because it wasn't really like it had nothing to do with my my own thesis. She didn't lift any ideas from me and re-represent them as they as if they were her own. She didn't steal um, sort of original thought and claim it as her own, which in a lot of ways is kind of the intent of Plagiarism. Well, I don't. I don't. I don't really want to say that. I. I think my issue is that outside forces financed basically this campaign to get her out, and Harvard capitulated. And I guess maybe that's what I'm more curious about. I think there is sort of this like the kind of public opinion storm, but then there's just this idea that there were a couple people with a lot of money who were like, "Let's find dirt on this lady," and got rid of her. And how many other people? when subject to the same scrutiny and given the same bar, like, hey, if you ever had done any of these things, you now need to leave your position. Like how many administrators of universities would we lose? How many people in, in all of their positions would we lose? And I think what's interesting in this particular instance is that you've kind of got the people who were like anti-cancel culture, very happy to cancel this woman and some and and sort of vice versa some of the people who are saying you know cancel culture is the only way you hold these people accountable being like whoa 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 we're you know not not for her or in or in some ways this is 
like racist or 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 whatever else. I I think it's I think it was just interesting and, and the words that you said, the perfect storm, I think fit um fit very well here. I don't know how I feel about it at the end of the day. I will say, I, I guess I'll say. Yeah, you reference our conversation with Dr. Madras. We've come back to that conversation a couple of times, and I would encourage people to go listen to it. It was episode 91. Dr. Madras was, uh, there is a professor at the Harvard Medical School and one of the people that founded the Council on Academic Freedom. As we've mentioned before, Harvard came in dead last in, uh, in the freedom of speech poll that, that was released last year. And so that's, I mean, that's another thing, right, where, you know, President Gay is ruling over the school uh, that has the worst academic freedom, freedom of speech and freedom of thought uh, as found in any college campus in the country. And that you kind of equivocate when you're like, but when people say, you know, the genocide of Jews, uh, it depends on the context. Like you can't have it both ways. And I don't disagree with you on the other side that what you can't, what Dr. Matter said that, you know, the, the answer to like, to limiting free speech is or, or ideas you don't agree with is it's more speech and so this idea of republicans who have railed against cancel culture at universities for years now now immediately hopping on now well you said this and i don't like it now we're canceling you essentially i think it's equally hypocritical but for my you can't you know have all these speech and say it's basically like you can get disciplined for not calling people the right pronouns but then being like well when we're talking about genocide of jews depends on the context it's just it wasn't it wasn't good uh and i don't disagree with you ricky that there are people that had um ulterior motives that um, were acting in bad faith that wanted her out from the jump because whether her political beliefs or because of her race or because of her gender all of this provided ammo but she did provide an awful lot of ammo here and so that's where it's kind of like I, yeah, I don't, I'm not necessarily applauding all of these people that led that like ousted her, but as I said before, I'm not, uh, I'm not shedding a tear for her either. I think that's fair enough. All right. Well, things uh, that I am shedding a tear. We might, we might shed a tear for. <laughs> we have the same transition there. I love when we're on the same page like that. Uh, yeah, I, it's been, Ricky, it's been very sad for me. I, and I know that this was something, so again, we're talking about the Patriots. Bill Belichick was, you know, they mutually parted ways, uh, pretty much in the same way that Claudine Gay mutually parted ways with Harvard. Um, so Bill Belichick, who has been the head coach of the New England Patriots for 24 years, for my money, the greatest coach of all time, that the greatest dynasty that you know the world, the NFL has ever seen or ever will see, and provided, in addition to, Tom Brady and Robert Kraft and so many players provided some really joyful moments for me, for us, for our friends and our lives over the past couple of decades is out. Like I said, I was sad. And I, again, I knew that this was coming and there are lots of really good reasons for him to go and for this relationship to end, but like legitimately sad by it. And so I guess I, I want your reaction to that in general. I really think Ricky that I don't know that I'll ever watch Patriots the same way again. And part of that maybe is me getting old. And part of that is I've been kind of out on the NFL for a lot of reasons over the past few years. But some of this is like, this is a relationship, not, not that I know the guy, but for like 24 years, you know, my all of my formative sports fan years, he's been there and leading this team and so many stories and moments. So I guess your reactions to that. And also, um, Gerard Mayo is, is the new coach of the New England Patriots, a 
former player of the New England Patriots, a black head coach. We talked about affirmative action in the NFL back in episode 46 a couple of years ago in the wake of a former Patriots assistant, Brian Flores, allegations against Miami and the and the Giants. And Gerard Mayo becomes right now, as it stands, the only the fourth uh, black head coach in the NFL. The Patriots did not conduct an open search for the coach. Uh, he was given the job and had been written into his contract last year. And so there was no search for the coach and immediately went to him. I think it's that's kind of an interesting thing too. So wherever you want to take it. Oh man. Yeah. Like you said, the end of uh the end of an era. I think he, you know, when people look back generations before us and they can see, you know, Lombardi walking up and down the sidelines in, in Green Bay or some of those others, Don Shula or whoever, you know, that that's definitely how I will think about Bill Belichick. He's just like this. It's it's hilarious. It's hilarious because he's like this cult of a personality without like in his whole personality is like not having one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think he he was able to do what coaches, you know, coaches who coach like wish they could do kind of. He was able to take all kinds of different types of players and always get the best out of them. You know, when he was in his kind of heyday, whether it was like unbelievably talented players who, you know, were having trouble buying into systems like Randy Moss or, you know, backup quarterbacks from Kent state, like Julian Edelman, he just, or, or my personal favorite, a, uh, a, a never starting running back James white from the university of Wisconsin, right? He was just able to find these guys who were willing to be unselfish, who wanted to just work and do play for the team and only team first. And yeah, even Tom Brady, probably until like his last Super Bowl or maybe second to last Super Bowl, was not the front man personality that he kind of is today under Bill Belichick. He was very much a team first guy. And that ability... I think is, is really hard to, hard to find. And then obviously like, you know, he's got, um, yeah, just a brilliant kind of a, just a brilliant coach. It, it's sad that it has to end this way with like such a horrific season for the Patriots and kind of a lot of dysfunction over the last couple of years, which was really like the hallmark of his teams is that, you know, whatever was going on inside the locker room, you would never know about it outside and that the performance on the field um, could kind of mask all of that. I think, you know, a testament to him, this team was pretty terrible um, and pretty openly terrible from the middle of the season onward. And those guys were still playing. I mean, that defense was still very, very good. And I think, yes, yeah, speaks volumes about, him as a coach that that people show up and want to play for him um in ways that yeah you don't you don't you're not going to see that um similarly in a lot of places i will i will be very sad i like the the do your job mentality um although it's kind of odd when applied to this like entertainment sphere is just something that you know i feel like if i'm ever coaching a youth soccer team or something like that's going to be 
a mantra that that I want that I want my you know that that I just think is important and so important when it comes to these team team kind of aspects. So yeah, a lot of yeah, I mean yeah, missing. Right. It's what they always said, right? The team, the team, the team. And that's really what it was for decades when it seems almost impossible. Like Pat Riley used to talk about like the disease of more, like once people win one, everyone wants to get paid. Everyone wants their own stats and to keep it going for 20 years and to seemingly keep so much of that dysfunction out of the organization was incredible. Yeah. there You can point to, you know, do your job or next man up or run to Cincinnati or one of the quotes that I used as like a vision for my classroom when I was teaching one year was no days off this idea of like we're going to show up every day and we're going to put in the work and we're going to do our best no matter like how we're feeling what happened yesterday what's going to happen tomorrow we're going to be here and we're going to work I guess one other personal connection I'll share um, Gerard Mayo I taught his niece 11 years ago Ricky and he came and visited our class one day and like he was showing one of our better athletes like how to form tackle and he was a phenomenal guy so I'm, I'm very excited for him in the opportunity as uh, a fairly young, he's going to be the youngest coach in the NFL. And uh, I think I, it's, it's, it's great. It's a great opportunity for him. So I'm excited for him, but just uh, there's a line. I'm sure it's not from this, but the movie cocktail, which is a Tom Cruise rewatchable for me. And it says uh, everything ends badly. Otherwise it wouldn't end. And that's, that's one of those, I feel like you'd like that line. Uh, it's yeah. one of those sad, sad lines, but it rings true in the case of whether Brady leaving or Belichick now leaving, or it's like to see him next year, you know, coaching for Atlanta or Dallas or San Diego or wherever he ends up going in eventually breaking Don Shula's record in another Jersey. It's going to be uh, another, another team. Uh, yeah. Sad. Like you said, as you said, end of an era. And, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I, and this is why I'm not in charge of anything like this. I probably would have let him and, you know, Tom play till they were 50 and I wouldn't have cared. If they were. Yes. Yeah. Like to me, they've, they've earned that. There's so many franchises out there that haven't won a single, you know, a single championship and they did, they did six plus nine Super Bowls. And uh, yeah, for me, there's like, right. So many happy memories just watching, just watching the Pats and, um, yeah, I, I think I, I'm excited for Gerard Mayo. You know, there are a lot of things that you said you know, about him being the youngest coach, but also being only one of only four black head coaches. I think a lot of people who played with him basically talked about him as if he was kind of a coach, even in his playing days. So I, you know, I have no doubt that he's going to know how to put in the work and and do a lot of those things. I hope a, we get some talent in the draft and in the off season so that it's not just a, well, you know, Gerard Mayo came in and, and, and the team's bad and still bad. And so, you know, we get rid of, it's a quick trigger on him because Belichick's kind of style of being very old school in a certain way is that is, is potentially, you know, on the outs in terms of how a lot of the new, coaches that are having success um are doing it and so the the i guess the idea is like obviously we have to sort of wait and see but i hope he's given i hope he's given like a fighting chance i think you know we need to we need to revamp the offense the defense is is still very very good and i think we can do those two things and he's able to bring a lot of those principles that belichick had and sort of new energy behind them um 
I mean, the future, the future could be bright, but would definitely wish him the best of luck. And yeah, I, I, I hope Belichick breaks Don Shula's record at some point and then figures out some way to come back and retire as a, as a Patriot somehow. And that was talking football. <laughs> uh, I Very know emotional not... connections, yeah. definitely. <laughs> yeah. No, I know that's not what everyone tunes in for, but it's it was significant enough not only here in our allies in the area, but I feel like nationally too. It's not often that the arguably the greatest coach in NFL history retires. So figured it'd be worth a, a little bit of a discussion. We appreciate people for bearing with us for that segment and for all of this. We appreciate everyone as always. Yeah, maybe I'll just say I know you tried to wrap us up, but I've been I've been waiting to drop this one on you that um, perhaps the greatest. I mean, I would say, as you would say, undisputably the greatest coach in NFL history, Bill Belichick, probably the greatest coach in college football history, Nick Saban, and another phenomenal coach in the NFL, Pete Carroll, all over 70, basically all with the exception of Nick Saban kind of being pushed, being pushed out in some ways being told, hey, you know, that your greatest days are behind you. And the game has passed you by, but who do we have for presidential candidates? <laughs> Anyways, well, on that positive note, I'll uh, I'll see you next time, buddy. See ya. We stay up all night. On Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads Running around till we forget where it was We began Some mornings you were away Some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for Hope I used to find in a case of lion's head Folks of different minds Because even though we did not share Opinions we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way But to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better than rain. Somewhere along the line, we seem to have forgotten the value sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, some morning let your ego bruise. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds Because though we didn't share Opinions we share Loud American ideals Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz There's hope behind the bluster Cause though Main Street may not sell It's full of folks just like you and me when we have trouble seeing the human for the politics, it's 
trying to find a better way to disagree. Some days you win, some days you leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for hope I used to find and change the lion's head. Folks are different mind because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. Oh, what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lies head. Folks are different mind because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz.